Good morning. My name is Art Cash, and I am the discipleship pastor here at River Oaks. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. Glad you're here. Merry Christmas. I'm excited to be continuing with you today in Acts 26. We'll be in verses 1 through 23. So, most of what you need to know about the city of Longyearbyen, Norway, can be deduced by its name, Longyearbyen. Now, you can, you can take the dad out of the pulpit, but you can't take the dad jokes out of the dad in the pulpit. It's always been a long year when you live in the northernmost city of at least a thousand people or more in the world. So Longyearbyen, it's, it's 800 miles above the Arctic Circle it's 600 miles from the North Pole. So not only is it freezing most of the year, the population has to deal with an extraordinary amount of polar bears. So on this archipelago, there's over 3,000 polar bears. And, and by law, if you step outside of the settlement, you have to have on you and able to use a high-powered rifle by law so you can protect yourself. So I'm sure that the frigid temperatures, the the polar bears, they, they all present their own challenges. But I think what would bother the, me the most about Longyearbyen is the, the polar night. So once, once the sun sets on October 25th, the citizens of Longyearbyen, they don't see the sun again until March the 8th. That's brutal. That's four months, over four months of darkness, no sun, no light. It's way too long. So we'll see a darkness in, in our passage today. It's deeper, it's more threatening, it's more bitter than any physical darkness that we might experience. A soul-level polar night, if you will, a night without end. A darkness that requires rescue for those trapped in it. And that really is our, our main point this morning from the passage, is that Jesus can rescue anyone, small or great, Jew or Gentile. He can rescue anyone. So let's, let's turn to our passage where we find these themes of light and hope and rescue all over it. Acts 26, 1 through 23. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we, we ask you this morning to help us by the power of your spirit, by the person and, and work of Jesus Christ, to whom all believers in here are united. That one more time, as we hear of Paul's conversion, that our, our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our intellect would be stirred by your spirit because of your truth, that it's, it's real. It, it happened. God, so we praise your name for that. We praise your name for Christmas. We praise your name for the cross. We praise your name for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, our, our main idea, Jesus can rescue anyone, small or great, Jew or Gentile. We'll work through the passage, looking at Paul's life before Christ. We'll look at his conversion to and commission from Christ and then his obedience to Christ. So you recall this, this scene. Paul stands before King Agrippa. We talked about this last week in Acts 25. He's, he's before Agrippa, Bernice, military tribunes, prominent men of the city and all their pomp and pageantry. Governor Festus has requested that King Agrippa examine Paul hoping that he can shed some light on the accusations the Jews have against him. So, so picture this setting. Agrippa, he's, he's not only knowledgeable, but he's powerful. He's potentially dangerous. You, you'll remember from last week that, that Agrippa's family tree, it's filled with violence. You, you had his great-grandfather, Herod, who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. You had his, his father, who executed James, imprisoned Peter, this king and his entourage, they now loom over Paul, scrutinizing him, examining him. Yet there's some hope. There's some hope because Agrippa's willing to listen. 
So verse one, Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So immediately we can learn from Paul and how he responds. Paul points out where they have common ground. King Agrippa, you are knowledgeable with the customs and controversies of the Jews. So this, is, this matters to us. If we get a chance to share Jesus, if we get a chance to talk about him, listen well. And we start with common ground. When we do that, it can make the conversation less of a debate and more about similar goals, even though we're coming at them from completely different angles. So then in verse three, Paul says, please listen to me patiently. And I appreciate that, him saying that. When, when someone says to me, would, would, you, would you please be patient with me? Would you just give me a minute to, to collect my thoughts and sort of think through what I'm about to say? I immediately want to. You've just enlisted me in, in, in your cause. I can extend you a favor of being patient with you. You've asked me to do it. I can do that. So what is it? than that Paul wants Agrippa to patiently listen to. He wants him to know about his life before Christ. In verses 4 and 5, Paul wants Agrippa to know that from an early age, he's been a, a strict Jew, a Pharisee. And in verse 6, Paul connects his life as a Pharisee to why he's on trial. Look, look at verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's on trial for, for hope. This hope will not be foreign to Agrippa. It's common ground. Paul mentions hope three times in two verses. Why? Why so much emphasis on, on hope? Well, Paul wants Agrippa to understand that he's not crazy. He's not a heretic. He's not an inventor of, of some new religion. He wants Agrippa to see that Jesus is the actual fulfillment of the promise made by God to their people, a hope for which they have waited for generations, a promise now fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So I remember vividly, nine years old, at my grandparents' house, this well-dressed man in a Cadillac breaks down next to Nanny and Papa. That's what I called them. That's, that's what it is in my Nanny and Papa's house. So I listened to him the whole afternoon tell stories about the horses that he owned, what it was like to live in the big city. Well, my Papa fixed his car and my Nanny made him one of her famous mater sandwiches, with the, the thick mayonnaise. So as, as thanks for my grandparents' hospitality and help, he promised to send us something special in the mail as soon as he got home. So for weeks and then months, I would ask my grandparents daily, has anything come yet? Has anything showed up in the mail? Do, do, we, get, do we get anything? I'm still waiting. <laughs> now that sticks with me, not just because an unfulfilled promise burns, but because the man who made the promise had the means to keep it, but lacked the character to do so. Not so with our God. God made a promise to the Jews that he would redeem them, that he would rescue them. He promised them a Messiah. And our God, he has the means and the character to deliver on his promise. God kept his covenant word through the gift of Jesus Christ to the world. Isaiah 9, 700 years prior, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does the Holy Spirit tell us about God's promises in 2 Corinthians 1.20? For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. That is glorious. So here, King Agrippa, is a God you can put your hope in. That's what Paul's saying. And look at what Paul does next in, in verse 8. This, this is brilliant. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He, he anticipates their main objection and meets it head on. Does it make sense to, to believe in a, in a crucified king who's supposed to be dead? The, the Jews are, are looking for a conquering king to defeat their military occupiers, their enemies. That's been their hope for centuries. They were not hoping for a baby in a feeding trough who grew up to die on a Roman cross. They weren't hoping for a resurrected king who would rescue them from their sin. Their problem is our problem. <laughs> How often are our hopes set on the shallow, the temporary, the unfulfilling promises of the world? What are you hoping for right now that you get for Christmas that two months from now, I'd be like, what, what did I get? What are, what are you hoping for right now that's good, that's great, but still will ultimately disappoint and fail? Their problem is, is our problem. So whatever the, the first century version of, of a mic drop is, Paul does it here. If there's a God, can he rescue and save the way he wants to? Of course he can. Can he do it through a crucified king that he raises from the dead? Of course he can. Since God is God, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So you can picture the, the air getting sucked out of the room at, at this moment. And I, I really think this is where Paul goes from, I'm, I'm giving a defense to Agrippa, to I'm preaching. I'm preaching to everybody in this room, small and great, Jew and Gentile, Jesus can rescue you. So let's, let's learn from Paul. When, when we share about Jesus, listen to the other person well. Watch them. What, what are their hopes set in? Then, brothers and sisters, appeal to a better hope. Appeal to an eternal hope. Help them see that, that whatever they are hoping in that's not Christ, it will not fulfill. It will not bear up under the burden of its own promises. With Paul, we see no amount of zeal for a strict religion. For us, even a sincere commitment to our own happiness, none of it fulfills. Nothing can give you the hope that Jesus Christ can because the hope that he gives is eternal. The rescue that he provides is forever. So Paul knows about this hope. He knows because he's experienced it firsthand. That's where he goes next in verses 9 through 18 with his conversion and his commission from Christ. So this is the third time that we're hearing about 
Paul's conversion. Why the repetition? I would submit to you that it's because we're, we're forgetful <laughs> and God's merciful and he repeats things to us so we will remember it. And, and here's, here's a thought. When you're reading your Bible and something is a repeated theme like we just saw with hope three times, there, there's something happening there that we need to pay attention to. So what, what's happening that, that, that this event would be repeated three times? What's the point? And I think it's this, that Jesus can rescue anyone, the ignorant, the wicked, and even the stubborn. Ignorant shows up in verse 9, immediately where Paul says, I myself was convinced. What was he convinced of? He was convinced that what he was doing was right, that his actions against Christians were good, that they were pleasing to God. And in his foolish ignorance, he acted wickedly. So just, just look at some of the descriptions, the types of wickedness in verses 9 through 11. Opposing Jesus, false imprisoner, false accuser, murderer, manipulator, raging fury, persecutor. Why would Jesus rescue someone who had everything so wrong? Someone so ignorant and wicked. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus rescues the ignorant and wicked, not so we would make much of the one who's been saved, but so we would marvel at the overflowing grace and mercy of the Savior. Man, what's going through Agrippa's mind as he, as he hears this? I mean, I hope he's asking himself, what could bring about such a drastic change? So what's new to Agrippa, we're, we're familiar with in verses 12 through 15. Paul is on the road to Damascus when a light brighter than the sun knocks him and his companions to the ground. And Paul hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Paul asks who the voice belongs to, Jesus identifies himself as the one Paul has been persecuting. But in this account, Paul gives an additional detail in verse 14. If you look at it there, the end of verse 14, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I, I googled goad images, and it's a stick with a point on it. So just picture that. You know, we don't have to put it up there. Just a stick with a pointy tip, and it was used to prod oxen or some other animal along. Now, I don't know why. don't know if, if Paul adds this goad detail because he thinks Agrippa and Festus or stubborn, but, but I love it. The, the only reason you would kick against the goad is because you're stubborn. You're fighting a battle that can't be won. You're resisting something that can't be resisted. The grace and mercy that Jesus can rescue, not only the ignorant and the wicked, but the stubborn. This is really good news for Paul because he's, he's the living definition of obstinate. It's really good news for anyone here today who does not follow Christ, especially for the stubborn skeptic. You may see the descriptions of, of Paul's wickedness in this passage and, 
and believe that's completely irrelevant to you. You're not persecuting the church. You're not murdering people. But I want to say this to you with kindness and pleading. So I beg you to listen to me patiently. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you do find yourself among the ignorant and stubborn. And even among the wicked. I'm not trying to insult you into the kingdom. That doesn't work. But I want you to be aware of your spiritual condition apart from Christ. It's a loving thing to do. And I have good news for you. Jesus loves to save the wicked, the ignorant, and the stubborn because that's all there are apart from Christ. That's all he's ever saved. (laughs) This is not my opinion that can just be easily dismissed. It's fact in the word of God from this passage. Look, Look at verse 16. Rise and stand upon your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to the things in which I will appear to you. The gospel. Paul's appointed to share the gospel. He sends Paul to the Jews and the Gentiles, verse 18, in order to open their eyes so that those in the darkness may turn to light, so that those under the power of Satan may turn to God. Those are Jesus' words. That's how Jesus describes those who do not know him or believe in him. If the quarrel about an unbeliever being ignorant or stubborn or wicked, your quarrel's not with, with me, it's with the words of Jesus When Jesus describes unbelievers in such strong terms as in the darkness and under the power of Satan, it removes the illusion of being morally good and should make you doubt your own skepticism. If you're in the dark, what is it that you're failing to see? If you're under the power of Satan, can you trust what your heart or your instincts are telling you to do? Now, I was 30 before I I came to Christ But I I spent much of those years in the church. And during that time, I kind of pictured Jesus as sort of the the shy prom date, who was sort of sitting over in the corner, chewing his fingernails, hoping that Art would just get enough information to make the right choice and and choose him. You know, I I pictured myself as the one in, in charge, the decision maker, examining the Bible, comparing different beliefs, Looking back, I could see how haughty that was. I stood in judgment over God, much like Agrippa here believes that he's the one examining Paul and judging between what's true and false. But our passage, it it dispenses with the illusion of the impartial unbeliever. It clearly states that, that I was the one in the dark. I was the one under the power of Satan. So, so what happened? What changed? Back to verse 18, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes. So I'm one of those folks that, that had, had COVID, and still over a year later, I, I don't have all my, my smell and my taste back. It's, it's, it's still kind of muted. And this is un, unfortunate on multiple levels. One, because I used to be the designated sniffer in the house. Is the milk bad? I don't know. Let dad smell it. How about this deli meat? Give it to dad. He'll, he'll sniff it. 
Now, out of habit, <laughs> I, I still get asked to smell and taste stuff, but I can't trust my senses. Now I just have to go by the expiration date like normal people. <laughs> but with a, we'll call it a corrupted sniffer, I, I can't tell what's happening with my breath. Sorry. I can't tell what's happening with B.O., <laughs> okay? I, I even smell things sometimes that aren't there. That's led to some false accusations in the home. <laughs> so what I would like is for someone to regenerate those dead nerve cells in there so I can smell accurately. Similarly, the person who is spiritually dead doesn't know it. They are relying on senses that have been corrupted by sin and a heart that is sick and can't be trusted, Jeremiah 17, 9. There is no way that I can convince you of this. You're in the dark until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to it. So, dear friend who, who does not believe, Jesus' words describing you as being in the dark and under the power of Satan, they rightly condemn you only if you reject them. So don't. See the warnings for what they are. These are not just accurate descriptions, but a loving invitation. Today, stop kicking against the goads. Repent and turn to Jesus. Okay, but, but, but wait, you said, that sounds, that sounds so easy. Just ask Jesus to forgive my sins, turn to him in faith, that's it. Then what? Well, according to verse 18, you receive the greatest gifts possible, forgiveness of your sin and a place in the family of Christ. I would take that deal. <laughs> what sounds too good to be true and too easy to be real is actually the heart of the gospel. The free gift of forgiveness proves to be the most costly action imaginable to Jesus. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one doing the forgiving. Now, my empathy has grown for this situation, having drivers now, but several years ago, our neighbors, the, the, the teenagers were learning to drive this frantic call that uh, the, the daughter in the house had, had backed over our mailbox, completely demolished it. She's asking for forgiveness, please. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, please. For it's a mailbox, absolutely. I forgive you, this is no, no problem. But the mailbox still has to be replaced. There's still a cost that has to be absorbed. So, so how do we begin to estimate the cost of our sin against an infinite holy God? We'll look to the manger. Look to the cross. Look to the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son Jesus' death on the cross is not only an indication of God's love for us, but also of how costly our sin is. How vile must our sin be? How vast must God's love be for him to send his only son to pay for our sin with his life so that we might receive forgiveness? And not only forgiveness, but then a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. How do you know what that means? That, that Jesus has rescued these wicked, ignorant, stubborn enemies 
set them apart, sanctified them to himself, adopting them into the family of God by faith. And what is our part in this? Not to earn it, not to work for it, but to receive it. You are invited to receive it today by faith. Merry Christmas. The most costly free gift of all time is available to you. So how does Paul respond to being appointed by Jesus to proclaim this good news? This is the purpose. Jesus told him, you will be sharing my gospel to kings, to Gentiles. Look at verse 19. This is how he responds. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. It's a little understated. (laughs) The last 25 years of his life, he was definitely not disobedient to this message. So then what? What, how How did he obey? Because he's doing here what any believer would do. Obedience is the mark of a true believer. But how did he obey? Verse 20. He declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul obeyed by proclaiming the gospel to anyone everywhere he went. And that anyone hearing the gospel should repent, they should turn to God. Repentance, what we just talked about in verse 18, this turning away from sin, turning toward God. But then what what does Paul mean by this phrase, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance? It's important for us because now we're talking about a believer. The NSB phrases verse 20 as believers performing deeds that are consistent with their repentance. With one phrase, Paul is dismissing the heretical notion of easy believism and cheap grace, meaning that You just say that you believe in Jesus and then live however you want. But wait, you you just told me about this free gift. Does this undo this forgiveness and belonging to Jesus that we just talked about? I thought all we had to do was receive it. It doesn't undo it by no means. In verse 20, Paul is sharing the gospel and what it looks like to live a life consistent with the gospel. This truth is, is worth repeating because we forget it. Note that the words in in keeping with, consistent with, none of those words mean earn. It's because you have had your eyes open to receive the forgiveness of sins and to realize that you've been rescued from Satan, that you now want to live a life consistent with the grace that has been given to you. Your obedience now, it's, it's not motivated by, by fear. Like when you're, you're, you're coming up over the top of a hill and you're going 65 and that, we'll say 45, so it's not too egregious. And you see the, the, the cop sitting there, police officer, I'm sorry, police officer sitting there and you do what? You slow down. And then when he's gone out of your rear view mirror, we'll speed, you speed up. Okay, so that, that obedience right there is, is, is short lasting. It's it's, it's fear-based, not for the believer. Now your obedience is motivated like a son towards his father. You want to please him because you're secure in his love. You're earning nothing now. You've been given it all. 
So you're becoming who you are as a son. You're secure in his love. We need to hear it over and over and over, believers. And when you fail, which you will, you repent, which is also a deed in keeping with your repentance. Lord, I I sinned. I acted in unbelief. I opposed you again. Please forgive me. Please help me hate my sin and love you. Will he help you? Yes, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 tells us, the God of peace will sanctify you completely. Remember, we're talking about the character of a king who keeps his promises. So he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. How do we know it though from this passage? Look at verse 22. To this day, Paul and every believer in this room, every believer who's ever lived, has the help that comes from God. If we've seen nothing else from Paul over these last several months, we can know this, we worship the same God. We are united to the same Jesus. We have the same spirit he does. We get our strength to obey, to repent from his spirit. We get the help we need to repent and go on repenting from him. So what we find is not only does Jesus rescue the ignorant, the stubborn, and the wicked, Jesus keeps on rescuing the believer from himself to himself. He wakes you up over and over. He takes you out of the darkness and into the light over and over. You've tested him, you've tried him, and you've proved him over and over. Who would not want to stand in front of small and great and share this good news? And that's exactly what Paul does. Obeying Jesus with the help that comes from Jesus. Paul stands testifying to the Lord's character, his power, and his willingness to save whoever would call on his name. Think about that setting one more time. Paul's proclaiming the gospel to Agrippa, but not only to the great, but also the small, verse 22. Paul is proclaiming the light of Jesus, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile, verse 23. Not just to the king, but to his various attendants and slaves in his entourage. He's proclaiming the gospel not just to Bernice, but to whoever is scurrying about, trying to make sure that she's comfortable. Not just to the military tribunes, but to the slaves who maintain their armor and care for their horses. Not just to the prominent men of the city, but to their secretaries who are busily taking notes at this meeting. They're all hearing it. Jesus can rescue anyone, small or great, rich or poor, free or slave, Gentile or Jew, man or woman, black or white, young or old. The gospel breaks through all social, economic, cultural, political, and ethnic barriers. We need to hear it. Paul knows this. He's lived this over the last 20 year, 25 years. He's seen proconsuls and prophets rescued by Jesus. He's seen jailers and Jews rescued by Jesus. He's seen demon-possessed slave girls and wealthy entrepreneurs rescued by Jesus. He's seen silversmiths and worshipers of space rocks rescued by Jesus. He's seen the lame healed and the dead raised by Jesus. All that Paul has seen and done in the name of Jesus. He presses ahead saying nothing 
but what the prophets and the law said would come to pass. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's reminding them where he started this trial with the promise of hope fulfilled. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, all of it foretold by both the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament promised that the Christ would come. Now, I wish there was time to revel in all 547 verses in the Old Testament that point ahead to Jesus. I can't keep you here till Christmas. So soak with me in a moment, just in Isaiah. Again, 700 years before. Here's the light. 42, Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Light means freedom. Jesus is the light of the world, the light to the nations. He shines out in the darkness. The incarnation is the miracle of Christmas. A baby born to die. There is no cross without the manger. There is no forgiveness without the cross. And the cross too was foretold. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed all We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This man who was despised and rejected while he was alive, crucified. Did he stay dead? No. God raised him from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sin of the small and great, the ignorant, the wicked, and the stubborn who would believe in him. So Paul stands before them all, a faithful Jew testifying only to the fulfillment of hope, proclaiming light to those who sit in darkness. So the good news for the people of Longyearbyen is that after four months of darkness around mid-April, Through late August, they get the midnight sun. So they get over four months of light after that long winter of darkness. For us this morning, we worship one brighter than the noonday sun. We worship one who rescued every believer in this room from eternal darkness and brought us into his light, into his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Father, we we thank you that it is your plan to save those in the dark, those under the power of Satan. Father, we submit to your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the piercing clarity of it. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who does not know you, who 
has not placed their faith in you, that you would, by your spirit, open, open his eyes, open her eyes. Please, Father, let, let them see the, the gift that is available to them. By your spirit, call them out of darkness into your light. Father, we thank you that for each one of us here who, that, that believes that you continue to minister to us by your spirit, uniting us to the work of your son. We are secure in your love and you empower us to live a life consistent with your truth and your grace. We thank you for that. We praise your name for it. In Jesus' name, amen.